Welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast, where we delve into the depths of what it means to be a man in today's world, and we explore the real-life challenges and triumphs that you and I face every single day. My name is Hector Santi Esteban, and I come with no answers, only questions for some of the most wise, insightful, and grounded men that I know. So get settled in. You're listening to Modern Masculinity. Fellas, welcome to another episode of the Modern Masculinity Podcast. My name is Hector Santi Esteban, and I'll be your guide for today. And well, for a little bit at least, our guest today is John D'Agostini, and he's a man who I've come to really admire for a variety of reasons. And once you get through this interview, you'll see why. But he wrote a book called Aimless, and it was a book that I read early on in this journey, if you will, at least when it comes to men's work, when it comes to doing the work that that we as men are called to do but haven't really been told to do. And what I mean by that is that life has kind of given us these circumstances to grow into the men that we're supposed to be, but no one really told us that we were playing that game. No one really told us what the rules were. No one really told us what the outcome was. And John's book speaks to that. And the conversation that we talk about today speaks to that in the sense that men don't have a North Star, a guiding light, a something to shoot for. Or if they do, it hasn't necessarily worked out for them. The models and the frameworks and the ideals that have been put in front of us are not necessarily the ones, A, that we want, B, that are effective, or C, that are going to be sustainable or ideal. And so enough of me. Hopefully that gives you some context. This conversation goes all over the place. This journey and this world, this life it tends to go all over the place too. If you're here and you've listened to this rant and ramble for a couple minutes, you're in exactly the right place. And I can't wait for me to bring John into your life. Because fellas, this is John D'Agostini. John, we are here. Welcome to the Modern Masculinity Podcast, man. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. When we had chatted a little while ago, you had greatly and most appreciatedly so recommended your new book. And so we're going to talk about that. I want to get into it because it has been so timely for me and everything that I'm going through as a husband and a father and man right now. And so I want to thank you for that before we get started. But I'd love to know for you, what's a challenge? What's a struggle? What's something that's real and present for you right now? Well, I think at the front of my mind, I'd say switching hats, just going from father to husband to business owner to author. It just seems that I, I can't really give each one its full due. And you have to put first things first, which always ultimately comes to my family, to my marriage and to my kids. So recently, it became a point of pretty intense frustration, just because there's a lot of work and I'm really excited about it. And I've kind of earned this mountain to climb and just don't have the time. But Ultimately, I feel grateful to have work that I'm passionate about. And even though it's frustrating at times not to get to it, just try and remind myself that at least I'm not bored. You know, it's things that I can really be passionate and get fired up about and just have to get out of bed a little early in the morning to get to it. <laughs> is this your first kid? This is your first no, kid? I have two. Tommy is turning five and Bella May is two and a half. 
So, well, it's still oldest is five and that's mine. Oldest is four. The reason I bring that up is that I think that for someone who's as hard charging as you are, and if you read your book, I mean, you were always finding a way to go. It was like military work. You were going, going, going. I've had to learn that when you have a family, like that mode doesn't always work. In fact, that mode may actually be detrimental. Oh, absolutely. If I worked the way that I did before I had kids, my kids would never see me and I wouldn't have a relationship with them in these precious years and moments I would miss. I consider them a gift. It's just at times the identity play where I really incorporated a lot of my work into who I am and who I wanted to be. And now I have these two little kiddos running around and transitioning my mindset towards my kids. I have to admit it took a little bit of time. Yeah, so much of what you write about in the book is like finding yourself. You eloquently shared that through a variety of experiences. But one thing that stood out to me is that I think that men specifically, they don't do that, whether they don't have the the guidance, whether they're not reminded, society or whatever, but they're not trying to spend time figuring out like who I actually am. We're either too busy chasing girls and then we finally get a family and marriage and then we kind of shift. And now I, I know I put too much of my focus on them, or not too much, but not enough on me. I wasn't taking care of myself. I was giving and solving and providing for them at the expense of myself and it created resentment. And so I'm curious for you, that journey, how has that evolved for you? Take us back and and you can share whatever stories you think might be relevant, but I'd love to know how that has evolved over your life. Oh, sure. Well, I grew up with a wonderful family. I had an idyllic childhood, truly. It was like a Norman Rockwell painting. It was just so classically American with little hints of Italian culture because my dad's an immigrant. And it was really wonderful. And then around 17 years old, drugs entered the family. And over the course of about 10 years, it just deteriorated and degenerated and got to the point where it was no longer functional. So a lot of my identity and who I thought I was was interwoven into my family. And then when we split, the pain of that split caused me to, you know, pain is a heck of a teacher. And I started to journey inward and ask myself tough questions because the way I was living at the time, my lifestyle and my mindset, I had learned over the last five years, say from 22 to 27 or even 19 to 27, it wasn't working. I just remember waking up one day going, if I continue down this path, I'm going to be a sorry excuse for a human being. And I'm not going to be able to look at myself in the mirror. I need to grow here. I need to learn some things. And that kickstarted along with some of the things mentioned in the book, especially my relationship with women, really kickstarted an intensive self-study phase. And I just started reading books like crazy. That was from 27, we'll say, and now I'm 38. So fast forward 11 years later with a family and a business and largely service focused. These are things that I know are not optional for me. They are mandatory components of my life. And without them, I know the things I'll fall back on, which are largely self-centered, which is pretty typically male when as men, we're kind of taught to be lone rangers, you know, in our own way and to go it alone. Well, that makes each of us selfish. You know, if we're not going to be team players or we're not going to put other people ahead of ourselves or on an equal playing field, it makes men uniquely selfish and that is manifest differently. So for me, No question. In the beginning, it was pain. Nowadays, it's actually love and connection with other human beings and to have a family. And I feel that the maturation process for a man, once you have children enter the picture, it just accelerates, Hector. I don't know about you, but it accelerates quickly and at a pace where you're just always kind of wondering, what am I doing? I mean, holy cow, this is a race unlike the pace is so fast. So, That's the the reason for this show is I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I don't think many of us do. <laughs> One of the themes that has come up on the show is that we are not 
living in our father's or our grandfather's time anymore. And, you know, pick anything, marriage, relationships, parenting, work, you know, everything has shifted. And so I had this conversation with my wife the other day. I was falling into like this negative cycle that I get into. And she was like, oh, you're just acting like your dad. And I was like, oh, jeez. At- <laughs> And to her, it seemed so objective. It was very even non-judgmental. It was very- yeah, It was a casual. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, oh, and I, I had always had this objection to that. And I grew up having this weird resentment to my dad, realizing resentment's coming up a lot. And I hadn't realized that. But in any case, I didn't want to be him, right? I think we all kind of go through that and I didn't want to be him. And, and then I realized like, even now I write like him. Our handwriting is literally like we write the same. <laughs> Right the same. And so I preface all that to say that we are living in a time that's different, but even subconsciously, we are stuck with these models that don't work in today's world. I'm curious what you think about that and how a guy can navigate that where there is no necessarily North Star, or there is, but it's not always as bright or they haven't found it, or there's a lot of clouds in the way, you know? Yeah. Well, it is complicated because we are not our father's. And we are not our grandfathers and nor are we living in their time. And to keep one foot in those archaic prototypes of men in social circumstances that don't exist, that are fundamentally different, it just doesn't make any sense. So we basically have a clean slate. Now, externally, there are those factors. And then there's the internal factors as well, where we're largely not encouraged at any point to do any sort of self-study or to build self-awareness or to even consider why it's important to be emotionally intelligent and to have social skills and to connect with other men and build brotherhood. These things aren't really talked about or emphasized, and they're absolutely instrumental to health, well-being, and identity. So we're living in a new age. The old stuff doesn't apply anymore, and we're underdeveloped. We've been under-equipped and in many ways disenfranchised. So moving forward, you really kind of have to switch your mindset. Instead of this being problematic, it's actually opportunistic we all can define our own masculinity on our own terms. That's really what I focus most on. And luckily, I have a wonderful relationship with my father who's totally up on this. He gets it. He came to America from Italy. He had to totally rebrand himself, basically. The United States gave him a completely different name, stripped him of his culture, and he had to assimilate. Now, the question I'm asking myself often is, what do I want for my son? And that, to me, kind of projects my thinking forward, and I can be a bit more proactive instead of playing from behind, if that makes sense. How do I want my son to feel on a daily basis? How do I want him to carry himself? And I need to model that behavior. Yeah, one thing that came up in the book quite a bit is this idea of toxic masculinity. And people have so many feelings about it, right? But I think the challenge is there's no agreed upon definition or the people that seem to have the strongest feelings seem to have a lack of depth in their understanding about what masculinity actually is. And so a big thing that I'm seeing culturally is that masculinity in its entirety is the problem. That's incorrect. (laughs) Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? No, we cannot do away with masculinity. It's an identity play. It's an internal life. It's an internal expression and cultivation. And so to bleach that out is to remove passion, remove direction, remove purpose. I wrote in the book, with toxic masculinity, you're either not man enough or with no masculinity, you're not a man at all. And neither option is functional. Neither option is pragmatic. And there's no long-term play. So I'm just completely against that whole philosophy. I understand because the expressions of masculinity in the past, toxic masculinity, 
when you hear toxic masculinity, all you have to think of is destructive. That's all it is. It's the idea that men elevate themselves as individuals at everybody else's cost while also simultaneously celebrating self-destruction, playboy lifestyle, all the hollowness and things like that. So that's why I offered an alternative, which is constructive masculinity, which is essentially a masculine identity that is individualized to every man that builds him up and builds up the people around him. And that's why the book is written the way it is, which is short stories followed by short essays that discuss these elements. I'd imagine you had a lot of examples, having the experience of the background that you did. You played collegiate sports, you had experience in the military, all very traditionally masculine fields, if you will. And I'd imagine that in those, you probably saw great examples and not so great examples. That's an assumption of mine. Is that something that you took away from some of those experiences where you saw, I know there was one coach in the book that you referenced that actually helped you get your start. Were you going along the way and pulling qualities or perspectives or taking what you will and leaving what you see wasn't effective? Absolutely. And I think that's something we should be paying attention to, not just from older men, but from younger men as well, a total intergenerational study of traits, characteristics, personalities, talents, things that you find attractive or things that you know you need then to emulate and to incorporate them into your own life. So yeah, I did that absolutely through all the phases of my life and continue to do so. I'm always trying to be a student, not just of men, but of women as well. I admire their humanity. I admire their spirituality, their ability to connect. I look to them for a lot of inspiration. And my wife is certainly, along with my dad, are the two most important and influential people in my life. So I'm eyes open, ears open, hearts open. That's how you grow. Maybe you could talk about your coach, but who do you look back to as someone that you try and embody often? Is it your dad? And if so, like when are those times that you call upon that? Most often, it's my dad, no question. My dad is a gladiator poet. He's a mountain of a man. He's very kind. He's very compassionate. He's a devoted father. He's just a wonderful man, flawed and beautiful in his own way. What do you mean flawed though? Well, sure. He's a person. He's flawed. He was very firm on me growing up, exceedingly firm. I never understood until later in life. So growing up as a kid, I was terrified of him, but he was so affectionate and safe that I just had bottomless love for him as well. Carrying love and fear of your father, I think is healthy. And he would say it too. He was too hard on me too early, but it happened to work out because I responded quite well to that approach. There was a few highlights in the book that when you talked on, you said it was obvious to me early on that being a father was something he took very seriously and put a lot of thought into, and it showed. I read that and I said, man, that's what I want. I want my son who's four to know. I hope he comes up with the same perspective where I was flawed, but I care because there are times where I'm in no chance perfect. But was it the affection or what were things that showed you that's how he cared? Well, super high level, and then we'll go to street level. Super high level, he was the most consistent person in my life. I mean, he was predictable. He never exploded just because he had a bad day or wasn't feeling good or anything like that. If he ever came down on me and gave me some hellfire, it was because of behavior that I already knew to be wrong. And that was always disagreeable to him. So he's very consistent in that way. And then in normal day-to-day -day interactions, he was affectionate. He was kind. He always wanted to make sure I was taken care of, that if I wanted to play, he would play with me, that if I needed help with homework, that I could talk to him. And also that he made himself available. If something was bothering me, he trusted me to bring it to him and we could talk about it. Now, whether I brought it to him when I should have was a different story, but the ball was always in my court and his door was always open. 
he was really remarkable in that way. And for me, once I learned how to really sail his waters, which were always reasonable, they were always reasonable in that they were very consistent and clear. Some of his standards were excessively high as a kid, but that wasn't because it was about him, which is what I think a lot of fathers do where they look at their sons and they project themselves onto their sons. My dad was very respectful and boundaried where it was always, I'm holding you to your potential. I'm not holding you to my potential. And we've been able to have these discussions now as fathers. But before, I never even thought to bring these things up. But since becoming a father over the last four or five years, we talk about them often. And I've gained a lot of clarity into his approach as a dad, which is certainly something I'm trying to incorporate with my son. You mentioned in here that he felt it was his mission to end the legacy of violence. I'm grateful that my parents and my dad was not violent, at least not aggressive. I would not say it was like a violent home, but I know that my grandfather's house, he would not say that. So my dad was kind of going through that. And I'm sure that there are men who are still in between that transition. But I'm curious if you've had any conversations with him about that or how that's kind of played out. Because I know that you also mentioned in the book that although he never got violent, he was very animated or excited or or loud. He was volcanic. (laughs) He was big. He had a big temper, big voice, big body language, filled room. Yeah. But this idea of kind of fixing or undoing generational trauma has been another theme that's come up. Do you feel that that process is done now? Is that still something that you work through? Like, I even wonder, like, I feel volcanic at times. Wasn't it a violent household? So I'm just curious your thoughts and what that evolution has been for you. Well, he did end the legacy of violence. He was brutally beaten and abused by a tyrannical person. The title father, I think, he didn't deserve it. He was really awful. My father's father. In terms of me, parenting is frustrating. I mean, being a father is never-ending frustration because, A, you're going in and you have no education on this. You don't understand developmental leaps. You have to engage and go into the internet, basically, and try and learn as much as you can on the fly And then you think you finally got it and you wake up the next morning and your kid is different all over again. So it's constant change. And I've noticed that I never really had a temper, but as I've become a dad and you're sleep deprived, you're not eating the same way, you're not exercising the same way, your self-care routines have taken a hit. You know, you get frustrated, you get angry, you get loud. And what I notice is if I guilt myself or shame myself, I actually get more frustrated and more angry instead of zooming out and looking at the situation objectively and go, all right, I see a 35-year-old man, human being. He's beat up. He's got a lot of pressure at work. He's tired and he's trying to, yeah, of course he's going to be a little frustrated. And that for me took the sting out of it where it normalized how I was feeling, which then also then allowed me to work through it, that there was nothing wrong with me or wrong with my life. It was just, this is what it is. Yeah, that normalization. And I think one reason that emerges is because of what you talked about earlier. And guys isolate themselves, they lone wolf it. And part of your evolution, what's interesting is the title of the book is Aimless. And it's so fitting for me right now. Just thanks again, John, for being such a timely read. But there's an evolution and a discovery of self. And then with that, there's a, I don't want to say need because need is a triggering word for me right now, but there's an opportunity for that evolution to include other men. And when that happens, I think it takes it to, a different kind of level. Oh, totally, totally. What's going on there? And why is that such a big part of the man's personal evolution? Like, why do other men seem to have such a big effect on a man's own evolution? So two things we need to get rid of right away is the Lone Ranger mentality, which is total garbage. Okay. It's very limiting. It's detrimental in many ways. And then the other thing is the code of silence that men follow. Code of silence prevents us from voicing our distress, adversity, pain points, 
failures, anxieties, depressions. It also prevents us from actually sharing happiness and joy and contentment because men are essentially told you're either angry or you're calm and that's it. You're not allowed to be sad. And if you're happy, then you must not be working hard enough. So the spectrum is very limiting and it forces us into these little emotional areas and we don't even know it, okay? Because it's just in the airwaves. It's what we're breathing in. So when you clue into this and then you start to become a little bit more self-aware, you start to understand what's between your ears, your self-literacy improves, your ability to identify what words you're using in your head, what words you're putting out in the world. And then you can find some other men that you don't even have to be similar, but are willing to engage and connect. This wonderful thing happens, which you build brotherhoods, which is something I wrote about in the book and the importance of having men in your life that, yes, you can voice your distress to. Yes, you can communicate your issues to, but you hold each other accountable to a higher self. And it's a beautiful thing. It's very supportive. It's most often positive. But I truly believe that we are built to connect men because we are people first and people need relationships. And the masculinity part, when that comes in and you have a bunch of brothers in your life or even just good buds, it's remarkable the growth that can be achieved collectively just knowing that you have a crew that you can get together with and be yourself around. Yeah. I have a group of guys, three other guys that we meet every two weeks. And it's so powerful to have a place where you can dump that stuff that's not your wife or your kids. Because even just several months ago, we weren't meeting consistently. I didn't have that brotherhood. And it was seeping out. And I was trying to deal with it all on my own, but it would seep out and I would lash out at my wife or my kids would get the volcanic eruption, right? Because I didn't have anywhere to put that stuff. So valuable. And I think a big part of it is that we have that opportunity when we're younger, whether it's through sports or things like the military, or there's these opportunities to create that, even if it's just by happenstance. But all of a sudden, when you have a kid and you get married, I know we went into like bunker mentality. We were at home. We didn't see anybody. COVID hit the whole thing. And so it was a really challenging time connection-wise. The interesting thing, though, is you've been doing this quite a bit, and you have some things that have emerged from your work with men because obviously Obviously, there's some trends and some things that are happening, and I'm curious what those are. And so we're going to get into that and talk about some of these findings that you have working in groups of men, 18 to 36-year-olds, and uh, we're going to do that right after this quick break. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Amplify Media. And if you don't know who we are, we are a small group of genius makers. And so if you have a mission, a message, something that you want to get out to the world, and you don't have the time or the know-how to do it, we can show you the way. So go to amplifymedia.com. That's A-M-P-L-A-F-Y media.com. You can find all the info in the show notes. We'd love to help. And with that, let's get back to the episode. John, you have been working with young men for a number of years now at a variety of ages and right in this really, I think, crucial moment where most guys end up going on their own. So there's a lot of guidance, there's a lot of structure through high school, even sometimes a little bit through college. And then you hit real life and it's like, there you go. Hopefully, if you get someone pregnant, you know what to do. Hopefully, if you find someone that's worth marrying that you can, you know, it's a really go figure it out on your own and good luck. So with that being said, you have kind of come in and tried to provide some guidance and provide some wisdom to these people. What are you learning? What's coming out and what's emerging from some of those events? Well, it's a great question and an even better discussion because I've been working with young men for 20 years in a variety of ways, the last 10 years as a leadership coach and mentor. And I can tell you that the conversations in high school, college and beyond are very, very different. 
But from college and beyond, the same three conversations keep coming up. Whether I'm doing a workshop on respect and objectification or different expressions of masculinity, it doesn't matter. The same three keep popping. And the number one would be self-study, finding out who you are, and faith exploration, which is to try and figure out what you believe in. And then the relationship between the two, who am I and what do I believe in and how do they influence each other? And so we do a lot of big questions on faith. They want to understand what grace is. They want to understand why do we practice forgiveness to people that hurt us, so on and so forth. The second would be relationships, how to cultivate meaningful, in-depth relationships with other men, with themselves and with women. And also how do you get out of them, out of toxic ones or maybe you know, you're five years in or two years in and you're in a tough spot and it's really murky and complicated and they just want to voice the circumstances and maybe get an objective point of view. And then the third, which has been easily the most prevalent conversation throughout all of them and kind of links into the first two, would be the general discontent with sex. Men at large are not asking me how they can have more sex. They're asking me, why am I not satisfied? Why was I taught that this thing that I should be going after and I should be doing, sometimes I don't want to do it, but I do it anyway. And then also, why is it not fulfilling? And then there are these whispers to this too, Hector, which are actually a point of great concern. The fastest growing population of men with erectile dysfunction are men in their 20s and 30s. So this used to be a point of interest. Now it's a point of distress for a lot of men. And because of the code of silence, they don't talk about it. What men do generally in these situations is they blame their partner because the ego takes a hit and they couldn't possibly accept responsibility for their lack of health or lack of perspective, lack of fill in the blank. So it's these three big things, self-study and faith exploration, who am I, what do I believe in, how to cultivate meaningful relationships with themselves, other men, and intimate monogamous relationships with women, provided they're straight. And then the third would be a general discontent with sex. So I've been doing this for a long time and that's what men want to talk about. Yeah, I'd love to start with that because I think this whole sex thing encapsulates a lot of the first ones. A recent realization, and thankfully I've been with my wife for eight years, and I don't have some of those same challenges <clears throat> necessarily. But what I do have is challenges trying to build up my own self-worth through our love life. That all of a sudden I'm staking my identity, my self-worth on how it's going. And if it's great, well, then that means something about me. And if it's not, then that also means something about me. It's not healthy. Because then when things aren't ideal or as I expected, yeah, it becomes her fault. And I start pointing and it starts, you know. So this is a discussion. Have you started to put together any solutions or perspectives or even questions that guys might be able to ask themselves to start moving to a healthier place? Sure, absolutely. And we've been talking about it at great length. So if you think about it, self-identity, basically, identity, relationships, and meaningful sex. If you want to have meaningful sex or sex that is truly enjoyable, that requires connection. You have to connect fully with another human being on multiple levels and in depth. In order to connect with another human being, you have to be connected with yourself because you're not going to achieve a depth with another person that you haven't achieved within yourself. So you have to know who you are. And that meaningful connection requires authenticity and vulnerability. Well, in order to be authentic, you have to know who you are. In order to know who you are, you have to do some sort of self-study. So they're all interlinked to each other. And what we then do is help men understand that if you're going to think about it in terms of performance, you're going to rate yourself as if you're on a stage. That's not what it's about. It's about being fully present in the moment. If you're choosing, I don't tell people to have sex or to not have sex. I just I say, look, if this is something that you're interested in, you have to be fully in the moment, fully present. 
and to connect with another human being and to stop pretending like you're on stage and don't put them on stage either. Just be in the moment and be together. It's tough because we don't even know what that means. We're constantly rating ourselves, constantly comparing ourselves to somebody else, constantly leaning ourselves against what we've done versus what we think we should be doing. And so it's a total shift in mindset that's very, very difficult initially. But for those who put the time in and communicate this with their partner, it's wonderful, truly. Yeah. And it seems like maybe I was projecting my own experience, but that sex was always an externally validating thing. It was proving my worth. It was proving validation. I would go around and seek validation. Starting middle school, my four-year-old boy, he's already dealing with that and apparently has a girlfriend at school. And I'm not nervous for him, but I know the challenges that come along with that. I guess I'm just trying to ready him and more than anything, give him the tools that I think so many men you know, I'm a few years younger than you, but so many of us did not have to be able to deal with those things. Are there practices, habits, mindsets, perspectives you think that a guy can carry into these types of relationships that can create healthier relationship with sex? First thing is you have to build self-literacy, the ability to identify what words you're using between your ears and to articulate them to yourself or to another human being because the motor is always running between our ears and or your feelings, right? Like, well, like, that's what I'm saying. Along with your feelings. Yes, exactly. I don't think I've ever told my wife, Hey, Riss, I'm sad. That word doesn't feel natural to me. I'll say, Riss, I'm a little banged up today. Got heavy thoughts today. I'm just trying to work through them. And sometimes we talk about them. Sometimes we don't often enough just for me to vocalize is more than enough just to acknowledge the fact that I am a human being experiencing this section of the emotional spectrum at this time in my life, period. That's normal. I'm a human. I'm a person. That's a normal thing to do. And being okay with that. Right? Oh, of course, being okay with it. Why wouldn't you be? Why make yourself feel something that's not real? That doesn't mean you don't want to engage in positive self-talk and find the perspectives and attitudes that allow you to get out of the trenches. There's no glory in just staying in the trenches for the sake of it. That's not what I'm suggesting. But to first acknowledge that you're there, that it's okay. Okay, now what are you going to do about it? I think two things. The first that comes to mind is, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, so I'm trying to come from the listener's perspective. I know for me, and I try not to do it with my kids, it was like, oh, you minimize the problem, right? Oh, you don't need to be sad. What do you have to be sad about? And what I find myself doing is pushing and diverting emotions before I even have the chance to feel them. Or it's such a quick diversion. I do this a lot with sadness and I turn it into anger like quickly because at least it feels easier and it's less painful than the sad. And so I, I just kind of wanted to add that into the conversation. When you talked about words and being able to articulate, I, so much of my journey has been understanding my feeling, my emotions, and like somatically identifying, okay, here's my anger comes up in here. You can feel it in different places. Yeah, absolutely. And look, when you have children, everything changes. Your heart exists outside your body now. And when they're sad, it it's so hurtful to us. And then we will man up, in quotes, man up and push them out of it into something else because it's too intolerable for us to be in it. And that that's a very common tendency. I do it all the time. I try to be aware of it and be present for my kiddos. And just if they're sad, they're four and two. My goodness, what's going to happen? Yeah. My uh, my daughter had a meltdown today and uh, she's 3. And so, yeah, we just we've learned to just give her hugs and <laughs> uh, yeah, my my daughter Belmay, she's a little dragon. She just lights things on fire. She's a big passionate Italian girl. I love it. 
I love it. And that's also something to consider too, as a man, where my daughter's emotions to me, for whatever reason, are far more tolerable than my son's. And it's something that I've had to work through and not perpetuate that onto him and to allow him to feel sadness and to be there for him while he feels it, not try and push him out of it. Just let him work through it on his own. I need him to build the skills. You know, just apparently I need to build the skills just as much as he does. <laughs> yes. I find sometimes they're even better at processing these things than we are because we've got so much baggage. That's right. We got the hangups. Yep. We've got all the boundaries, hangups and jagged edges that have been forced into our heads over time and basically removed our sense of humanity. We have to be men. We do have to be men, but we're people first. Yeah. The self-discovery thing is also interesting. I feel like and maybe we're just, I don't know what the word is, hindsight is twenty twenty vision kind of thing, but the cards were stacked against them, or at least things were not lined up for, let's call it constructive masculinity to be the natural effect, right? If we were to look at all the societal conditions, all the influences, all the personal ones that you mentioned, all these things do not naturally add up to constructive masculinity. And I don't even know what the question is there, but like when you look at what men are stacked up against and we can't just go with the grain or we can't just go with the flow. Hector, you have no shot. No, you have, you have no shot at, if you follow societal messaging and the influences of society, you have no shot. We use a line here all the time, which is if you don't know who you are, the world will tell you. If you don't find your own path in life, you will be assigned one. And this is why it behooves all of us to ask ourselves these questions. And I want to be really clear on this too. You don't have to have, I'm 38. I don't know anything. I am constantly learning about how much I don't know. And I'm okay with that. I've learned to be okay with that. I don't have to present myself as this all-knowing sage. It's far from it. I'm just trying to figure things out just like you. I've just been on different roads as a result of this discovery. And I've done a lot of service work and I've worked with 10,000 plus young men over the course of my career. And everything's different. If you don't asking yourself these questions, if you're not engaging in some sort of self-study and so you can self-discover or self-actualize, you have no shot. Men are so unhealthy right now in America, especially. We're emotionally incompetent. We're demotivated our health is suffering, we're mentally ill. If you're not engaging in brotherhood, engaging in self-discovery, so on and so forth, that's what you can expect to happen. If I didn't have the tools and resources, both personally and in a community, it would be hell. It would be absolutely hell. You would be who this tells you to be. Right. It's a scary thought to give your, I don't know what the word is escaping me, your agency as a man, I think you referenced that, or like your agency is so important as a man that, you know, to give it to an algorithm or an Instagram feed or a TikTok video is really, to me, it's terrifying, right? What that leads and stuff. It's interesting you say that, Hector, because you talk about to be healthy, happy, you have diet and you have lifestyle, basically. Because of today's day and age, you have to include media nutrition as well. What are you consuming through media? It is absolutely essential at minimum to be aware of because the national average per daily use for men from 16 to say 36, I believe that's the age range. Somebody can fact check that. But the average daily use for social media, this isn't laptop, this isn't gaming, just social media is eight hours a day. So you have a 56 hour work week as a consumer and 
I never tell guys not to use their phones. I actually incentivize them and try to help them develop habits and skills to use their phones and social media in a constructive way. Because right now we're being owned. We have to flip the script and social media and our phones, which are tools by their nature, need to be run by us. We need to be in charge. So it's helping guys understand learning how to mine information, learning how to harvest best practices, and above all, how to get together with your pals in person and then put your phones away. And that is a skill that is totally lost on these generations. You said it earlier, you go through high school and college and it's largely planned out. Our lives are essentially curated from zero to 22. And then if you go to college, you enter the real world, you get smacked across the face for a decade before you figure it out, if you figure it out. Yeah, yeah. That's about how long it took me. <laughs> yeah, same here. The book is out. It's called Aimless, A Journey to Constructive Masculinity. I love that title. And where else can people go? I've got one more question for you. Before we get to that, where else can people go to get connected or go deeper into your rabbit hole? You can go to johndagsmentors.com or johndagsmentors on Instagram and TikTok. And for the adults, I'm going to start posting a lot more material on LinkedIn. Some of the things that we're talking about, as well as images and maybe short clips from the work that we are doing, because I am trying to build, I don't think coalition is the right word, but I'm trying to build these partnerships and relationships, not just with like-minded thinkers, but people who think differently than me, but everybody who shares this common interest in promoting men. And that doesn't mean you promote men at the expense of anybody else, but just to promote men in general, because it's uh, the crisis is very real. We fell off the cliff about 10 years ago, 10, 20 years ago, and we're just now realizing it. So johndagsmentors.com, John Dags Mentors, Instagram and TikTok, and John D'Agostini on LinkedIn. I love it. Guys, go get connected. Go get the book. It's a great book. I have it on my Kindle. So I have it on my phone. I have a Kindle in the bathroom and I'm able to read it wherever. So go grab it. My last question to you, John, before we get out of here is what does modern masculinity mean to you? I think it's in the eye of the beholder. I really do. I mean, there are societal parts that are part of this, meaning simple example, pay gap for women is closing rapidly, not necessarily in the C-suite, but women are becoming more and more financially autonomous and independent. So that whole idea of men have to provide doesn't really have much traction. I think if you're going to talk about being a modern family man, that's one thing. But being a modern man in general is, is entirely up to you. And what I try and get guys to understand is if you're not going to hold yourself to these toxic traditional ideologies, which I would recommend don't hold yourself to those, they're very limiting, what are you going to do? And so it becomes opportunistic. And there's a lot of freedom in discovering who you are. I have guys that are going on, are taking gap years, are taking six months to go around the world, are exploring art and writing, doing all sorts of different things to engage in cultivate an interior life to really find out who they are. So the sky's really the limit. But I would, what we talked about earlier, I would look around truly. Look at other men and women, but if you're talking about masculinity, look at men and see what you actually find desirable about them. Not their title, not their job title, okay? That's an externally assigned label, okay? Look at them as a human being and see what you like, what grabs you, what interests you, and then think about how you could incorporate those things into your life. And I, for me, that went a very, very long way, and I thank God for surrounding me with men 
who cared about me and took me under their wing and showed me the way to a more beautiful life, which is certainly why I do what I do because I'm so grateful for them. And I'm trying to pass that on to the other guys. Yeah. I appreciate what you're doing for men and at the scale that you're doing it. And it's but the word that came to mind is honorable. And that sounds, I don't know what, given your record, you've done plenty of honorable things in your life. So it's just par for the course. So I want to thank you for that. And also the wisdom that you're sharing as well. Guys, thank you for sticking with us today. I would encourage you to go back, re-listen to this episode and take something from it, right? Take something, use it, implement it. At least for me, it's the power of brotherhood, right? And the perhaps necessity of that for men to get through what it is that we're collectively going through. So if you guys enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating or review wherever you choose to listen to your podcast. If you know somebody who would enjoy this and would love to dive into some of the topics that we went into today, please share this episode with them. And of course, as always, thanks for being a part of the Modern Masculinity fam. We'll see you on the next one. Later, guys.